three types of boats here. What are we looking at here? Just well, to... we're, we're looking at uh, some steel draggers. Uh, Princess Laura, Giuseppe Di Maio's boat. He's a real go-getter. He will always be one of the survivors. Orion is one of his. Over there's Lady Kate. They're all draggers uh, that are of uh, 70s eras, 70s, 80s era aesthetics, meaning business model. We like it like this. And they're kind of as high carbon as it gets, okay. business model. It, it is what it is. And um, so this unfortunately is also what represents most of the leadership in this industry in these parts, which is what brings us midterm in our conversation here to the heart of the matter. Yeah. Um, on the left over here, we see a mix of uh, fiberglass, mostly fiberglass, I guess. There's a couple of wooden ones in there too. Uh, lobster boats, they can also be used for rod and reel fishing. Some of these guys do long lining over the side, some of them do gill netting. Uh, over here, we've got a small guy, I think he occasionally goes after scallops, in which he drags a, what they call a dredge, which is a, a 10, 12 foot wide steel weldment over the bottom of the ocean, uh, sandy bottom, where they try to simply scoop up. Like a plow? Almost like that. So that's what we're looking at here. This is where, in the, on the, at the western end of the state fish pier, used to be small islands. So finally, the state built all these out together with, at one point, on the Catholic Church. And so we're looking at the south channel over here, the north channel behind us, and over there, Smith Cove. And that's sort of the core of what makes for Gloucester Harbor since they found this place a long time back and been in business for what, 394 years or so. All right. So yeah, just to recap all that, uh, yeah, we're sitting in the America's oldest fishing port. Is yeah. that accurate to yeah, say? It is. Just Gloucester, Massachusetts. We're in. Uh, we're at the edge of what the outer harbor here. Or is this the inner the, harbor? We're in, the, we're in the, the heart harbor. of the inner harbor. The outer okay. harbor begins beyond uh, the paint factory. There's a legal line, but you, you know it when you go out there. Suddenly, yeah, it gets all much bigger. It yeah. expands. Okay. Cool. So yeah, this is this is the heartland. This is the fishery heartland here and as uh, Suzanne is describing uh, we're looking at a lot of outmoded and outdated fishing equipment and that's not necessarily from what I understand uh, the equipment or the operators fault necessarily no uh, what you find here is in 2018 is something rather untypical for this old economic engine this is what you're looking at is one of the oldest industries in this country ever they came here to fish, to do some logging. There was not much good farming, too many rocks. This is all old glacier, terminal marine stuff. Everybody discovered the, the interesting area. This is a natural protected area. You can go fish and you find protection from weather. Uh, and the waters are extraordinarily fertile compared to other places. What, uh, what factors contribute to that? Uh... Well, so much is the underwater topography. Um, people have speculated, we all know about global warming, people speak about rising seawater level, but when you had ice ages, an awful lot of water got locked up on land, and when you look at old maps, or actually current maps, go on Google Earth, and you see the continental shelf extending at about approximate water depth of 200 feet, level out until it finally drop off into, in some cases, literally the abyss, thousands of feet of ocean water, and you realize how different the shoreline used to look when there was, right now here, where we sit was about a mile 
pile of ice in the last ice age and all the water was on top of us here in, in frozen form but it was on the ocean and it really was worldwide in many places Europe was half covered and so uh, what what where we are today is is based on that geology and and the weather conditions of ice ages and then warming periods which shaped the topography underwater and the water levels put it on such a level where you have currents and you end up with fresh water coming in here this river and and that connection there tidal coastal stuff where you end up with an interesting mix of biology in the water that feeds on each other and multiplies each other and you end up with a fairly solid food chain that produces all the way to the most lucrative fish on top of that food chain that makes this place economically so interesting and as i said it's been here around since 1623 and it's hard to argue with that track record it's not a new thing it's it's and just to say it early and often, it is, if you do it sustainably, we should be sitting here, you not you and I, but somebody else in a magic pod, rather than this car of ours here, and 400 years from now and be looking at different boats, but all of them more or less doing the same thing with some luck, because the Atlantic Ocean will always produce, if you don't abuse it, and if you don't try to go after the resource with the wrong fleet. And if you don't ruin the fundamental uh, local culture and regional national culture of innovation, and what you're looking at here is uh, right now, as you said, outmoded hardware. You're looking at a fleet that has been frozen in time due to federal and regional regulations for about 24, 25 years. Now that 24, 25 year number has a start date. And um, from information that you've shared with me, that date is March 1st, 1994. Why don't you tell me what happened on that day? Well. In a universe in which you have a mix of folks who take from the resource, harvesters or exploiters, some people have four-letter words for those good folks, but most sensible fishermen are sensible, I like to be in business 10 years from now. In that universe, when somebody harvests out of what is a public resource, you'll have ecologists coming and say, wait a minute, you got to watch the resource. You have regulators saying, don't take too much, you want to be in business tomorrow. Then you have enforcement folks, you've got bureaucrats, you've got scientists who want to give you sort of a basic base on how big, how small should the fleet likely be, or rather how much fish you should take, but no more than this, maybe a little bit more of the other species. It gets to be quite complicated and so this conversation about what should happen around the block 5, 10, 20 years from now that's been ongoing for a long time. So what led up to the March 1st 1994 key date was a reasonably extended conversation with public hearings about well we need to make sure we don't overgrow the fleet. What was the problem with overgrowing the fleet? This actually goes further back, and you and I haven't discussed this before, but if you look on, on, on Wikipedia, look at the exclusive economic zone. It was a movement worldwide under the United Nations uh, leadership that between 78 and 82, I believe it was, gave each country a slice of that, that oceanfront property that would reach out 200 miles, mm -hmm. up to 200 miles, usually is much less, particularly in much tighter waters, so certain bays, certain smaller rather than large oceans or smaller bodies of waters. And and folks then have, for that length of shoreline, they have control over the economics that you can do in it. The territorial waters are much smaller than that, but you have a right to do in those waters within reason. You can do fishing, you might be able to do gravel mining or drilling for oil or something, which means when you have this globally, since the early 80s, the latest, under United Nations governance, 
that what happened here in Gloucester, all the Russian factory ships disappeared over the horizon. The East Germans, the Poles, the Japanese, Koreans, whoever found their way here to, to take fish out of local and regional waters, essentially U.S. waters, they were all thrown out beyond 200 miles zone in order to support the local industry again. And, and so in order for the local industry to then not overbuild its own fleet structure to make up for the vacuum left behind by those large global cruising, these are big factory trawling ships, they're really monstrous fish factories at sea, uh, they finally realized, you know, if we let the local guys build what they want, uh, it's not going to be good for the resource. And so that's a good idea. You want to focus on everybody having a good out income with a long-term good outcome for the industry and the ecology because you want to be indeed, and that language was used less so in those days, but we've all learned it now, you want to be indeed sustainable in a good economics, in a, in a business sense, and, and therefore you must be sustainable in an ecological sense. Um, so that meeting was it's a good thing, multiple meetings, ongoing dialogue. What happened in 94, March 1st, is that they, they did pass a set of rules that seemed to make sense. You want to limit the growth of the fleet. You don't want the fleet to outpace what nature can actually provide for you. You don't want to take too much so nature cannot recover next year or five years or ten years from now. So all this seems to make sense. But, but, they started here in Gloucester, Massachusetts at the regional office of the National Marine Fisheries Service, NIMFS, one of these many oddly spellable or pronounceable acronyms, great fun for kids to learn how to spell it without spitting. And they're part of NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. These are in many ways good guys, they're mostly science-based people who are doing serious work in the interest of the nation, both economically but also ecologically. Uh, and so there's, you can't argue with that. Science is fundamentally a good thing. But, used a big but, bold print, you know, painted with a Batman light under the cloud cover over the city at night, used a big but. They used metrics to limit the growth of the fleet. That was just bad thinking. Not because I say so, but because they picked metrics that were proved either to be energy contentious, people couldn't agree what they actually meant, or they were meaningless in some cases, or they produced a fleet that was becoming the opposite of what the initial impulse was. They want to make the fleet essentially sustainable in a current sense we, as we know the word. But even then, I mean, scientific words is, is what it is. You can't just, uh, yeah. it is what it is. So, so they try to do the right thing. But what, what those rules produced, these, they, they picked just three simple metrics. You figure out three is simple enough. It's not hard to screw around, but they pick two bad ones. Now, before you say those metrics, yes. I want to clarify, or add one thing and then clarify one thing. Um, the the two uh, organizations that you mentioned, NIMFS and NOAA, NIMFS is part of NOAA, NOAA is part of the Department of Commerce, yeah. and just for people who didn't know that. So this is all uh, based on the fisheries and based on uh, the, the economics of the matter. And which is not necessarily a bad thing. And also, just to clarify, um, if you're familiar with any of the discourse in Gloucester, it's very much fisheries versus government scientists. And there was a sort of the uh, the Capulets and the Montagues of the the whole uh, politics here. And you're not saying any of that rhetoric. You're not saying that the government scientists are bad or the ecologists are bad or even that the ecology doesn't matter. You're actually arguing for a very ecologically strong outcome here. Um, so 
I just wanted to, to just pinpoint that, and then now we can go into yes. what those metrics actually Ca are. And what calling they each mean. other's names hasn't really been terribly productive. We can do this as a, a current cultural fashion along those lines. I think that will ebb again after we've used every incivility we can come up with, and it all gets a bit stale after a while. <laughs> And the same thing goes true for Gloucester, because you can always paint the evil scientists as uh, nasty. They don't know where fish are and what do they know anyway. And, and of course, scientists can say, listen, you guys, you've never spent you know, decades of your life getting a PhD and trying to earn your stripes to be taken seriously as a federal fishery scientist, so you better pipe down. And so most sensible folks are sensible with each other, respect each other, but some of the romance is uh, the endless, you know, unproductive back and forth in a public forum. No, I'm not talking about being part of that. I'm, I'm happy to produce four-letter words and being as, <laughs> as cutting in my sharp language as you want me to be, but that really doesn't go very far. It's good no. to occasionally let off steam, but what, what moved us to engage, we're kind of slow on the uptake before we get into the metrics, is we looked at the fleet, and said something really gone wrong, and it took us many years before we actually woke up looking at this every day. It takes a while for these consequences to kick in, which brings us to the metrics. All right. Let's, yeah, let's have them. Good. So want the federal friends, together with consultation, in consultation with, with certain local folks and also ecologists here and there, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought, let's limit the fleet by length. We don't want to have a too big a boat. That was the assumption. Uh, let's limit the horsepower. Well, you know, the, the, the more horsepower you have, the more you can probably drag a big net around and you can go faster or whatever. Let's limit that. And let's go for something that's called tonnage, which uh, well, <laughs> that's already when things get sticky because if you hit the dictionary somewhere and try to find what tonnage really means, it means a number of different things from a different perspective. Mm. So it gives an early indication that what, what, what we came to realize years later, uh, looking at the fleet, because it didn't look right, as I just said, they picked two bad out of a set of three metrics. Picture in, in baseball, if you do. 0 and 3 and 33, you know, you're doing good. If you do 0 and 5, great. But if you do 0 and 5 with, you know, in graduate school, you're not going to be there. And if yeah. you, as a scientist, you do 0 and 3, you know, 0.33, you shouldn't be calling yourself anything and certainly shouldn't be taking the money that these folks make. And I, I, it's easy enough for me to be kind of casual with my language about this, but it really hits home in a very hard way. It has distorted the fishing fleet away from what we would have hoped to be a natural evolution towards sustainable uh, geometries of hulls, drive trains, fishing methods, daily operational, just simply the way you go about your work to say, you know, today I'm going to burn out a couple of gallons less because I figured out a different way of using my boat. That was was, that, that was never allowed to even emerge, which is the opposite of what you'd want in a 21st century, what has to be by definition a sustainable fishing fleet. Okay, so first let's break down those three metrics then. So boat length, and you're basically, uh, you know, yeah, I, I want, I'll use the layman terms for these. You're going to measure from the front of the boat to the back of the boat. Yep. And uh, we're looking at the, the boats in front of us here again, just to reference the, uh, the Princess Laura here. Um, how big is this boat here? I think she's about 80 feet. She's okay. one of the biggest ones here in town. Is that close to the limit? Or is that, how, uh, how big can you get? It, it is depending on what fishing permit you have. This What's is the biggest one? The biggest here in town, I think, is 90 feet. Okay. It's Princess, uh, she's Miss Trish, second over there in Harbor 
loop. Yeah. And occasionally, so some bigger ones even show up. Uh, <laughs> a good question. How big is it by length? This goes back to medieval days. Okay. Right. You go back, you, you enter with your fine trading vessel, you're in an, an English harbor, and here comes the harbor master, and he sees you coming. He says, okay, this guy owes me some parking fees. I'm going to tax him for being here. He's going to unload this. He's going to load something else. So he's going to be on the pier. He's going to be at the quay, and he's going to paste the length. So you both said, you owe me, uh, well, let me see, you owe me this many, whatever. And this is how far back this goes. You can look up in, in royal history, so to speak, I mean, English trading uh, conventions, customs, where this, this was done hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So it seems this would make sense. Measure the length of the boat. However, however, what we couldn't do in medieval England or Germany or Sweden or even China, what we couldn't do then is look at the boat in a broader sense in terms of how big is the boat. Because what our scientific friends in 1993, 1994 were aiming at, they were trying to limit the relative, and here comes the word, lethality of each boat on the resource. Mm -hmm. They didn't want each boat to take too much. So what they were trying to limit was actually how destructive in a worst case, or how at least how much harvesting capacity each individual vessel has, to not have that grow out of control. So when they thought that they should limit the length, they'd say, oh, that keeps the boats from not growing too big, and therefore it's a good thing. And we don't give them a, a super Mongo engine, which is good too. And this tarnished thing is supposed to limit something else, except they really got lost, we could get lost in the weeds on tarnish ourselves. They, they thought they were defining the overall bulk of the vessel with that. <laughs> but this already gets very technical for the uninitiated. If you talk to fishermen, and depending on whom we talk to, you'll find that the same boat either grew by double or shrunk by half its tonnage in the same lifetime without anybody doing much about it. It was apparently a very unreliable and very subjective measure mm. that you a higher surveyor, he may come up with a different tonnage number than the previous one had. I mean, I'm massively simplifying here, but it was a highly unreliable thing. They didn't use the term tonnage the US Navy would use today, which is weight used the vessel's weight, uh, mm. simply say, this thing weighs 100 tons empty, and now we know what this boat can roughly, what it amounts to for size. They didn't do that. Now, okay, that, yeah, so we kind of jumped into the second metric there, but, um, yeah. so just to revisit the first metric and to flip the coin and just look at that from a sustainable per perspective, if that regulation was removed, my mind immediately goes to a long, narrow, vessel that's you know maybe 180 feet long but half as thin or something like that what is the what is that free and what do, what possibilities does that open up if you can exceed the maximum length well you're already touching on what we were pushing at once we finally woke up and spoke up in public okay um, we we would have said and we've said and we thought it would be obvious and it is obvious from a metaphysics and design perspective is to is to uh, say you know don't limit the length simply limit the amount of fish that's available. This way people can pick a long, lean, skinny machine. They can pick what you find in the West Pacific, these odd proas, a long, lean hull with a little outrigger to keep it from falling over. Mm. Uh, you yeah. could use trimarans, catamarans, you could do whatever you dang feel like. I mean, anything that you've seen on TV, find on Wikipedia or in an old bookshelf, you would be exploring what you think for your particular fishing operation, for your species you like to do, for your fishing method. You would pick the kind of boat that you think would be the coolest. And of course, you learn from each other. 
you always steal ideas. That's part of the working waterfront since dawn of okay. time. You look at each other and you would have learned, yeah, I'm not going to repeat that mistake there. I'm not going to do it like this guy either because it seemed like a good idea, but it was a bad one. What the folks did in 1994 with limiting the fleet by length, they shut all this innovation down. So fishermen who have since then not been allowed to figure out a way to pick boats that would allow them to live with fuel cost increases, for instance. We all remember, we're all old enough who listen to this, that if you go back, you can go to the Energy uh, Information Agency website, a federal government website, and look at the cost of diesel fuel, which most of these vessels run on, they're almost all running on diesel. This is internal combustion. Um, the technology is over 100 years old. You see a fuel cost rise increase from between 1999 $1.10 to $4.20. Mm -hmm over 15 years. This was like 10 times the national inflation rate. Now, if you as a fisherman cannot adapt your operation by picking a long lean boat that runs with less horsepower or goes faster with the same, or you change your fishing method altogether because you want to use a low horsepower boat, but you still want it long and lean because you like the length, yeah. and then you cannot do that you are beginning to drive a stake through the heart of the industry in slow motion. See, because the loss of physics is what we're talking about. We're not talking about my preferences, or yours, or this guy over there, or that fishing woman over here. We're talking about the loss of physics in which, you can look it up, it, what they call uh, 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 displacement speed. You can look up, we're not going to discuss technicalities too much, but go look it up on Wikipedia somewhere. It is when you push a body, whether it's an old tree that fell, or you push a nicely sculpted rowing boat through the water, or you push a big old whatever, they have one of these steel vessels in front of through the water, each individual object you push through the water, without making it skip on the water, but it just you push it through the water, it will have a maximum speed. No matter how much horsepower you pour into it, you mm. cannot violate the horsepower. If this, the Princess Laura here, she may have between 600 and 1,000 horsepower. If you were to give her a gas turbine of 4,000 horsepower, she would not be able to go faster or catch more fish. The loss of physics will make her, it simply... It's by your, way of just, there's only so much water you can push with aside, a shape. And, and also, once the boat cannot lift out of the water because she's so heavy or the shape is designed to actually yeah. let the water flow around it, by forcing it to go faster through it, the loss of physics won't allow, you can maybe get another tenth or uh, a fifth sure. extra knot out of it, but you're just killing us, your economics by burning twice to fuel without catching any more fish that you can pay for the fuel with. So, so when you limit a, a fleet by length, which they did March 1st, 94, you lock up for good the industrial uh, infrastructure to adapt, as I said, to fuel cost increases on one end, but also Variation in the resource. What is where? How far do I have to travel to find this species of fish? That's currently going to go for this much money on the fish market, or do I need to go somewhere else because this time of year they're not here, but I find them over there. Each mile traveled, that yeah. you have to burn extra fuel by the loss of physics you don't want to burn, uh, is a penalty on it. Well, and fact, then on top of that, and we haven't gotten to this yet, uh, when science suggests to you there's not enough fish anymore, now what? So you could not adapt, nor is there enough necessarily fish to feed the monster that you stuck with since March 1st, 1994. And this is just based on a length business. And we just talked about horsepower, you limit that, so okay, she, so Princess Lau is not going to get a 4,000 horsepower gas turbine set. She still has a 600 or 1,000 horsepower before, which is fine. Uh, but the horsepower limitation is sort of really secondary, not for dragging, 
But this will be Dragos even here now will say, yeah, Susanna, I can do the same thing that Princess Clara is doing. I can do it with half the horsepower. It's a source of pride for me because I have ways. Well, I'll leave it okay. up to the Dragos between each other. What matters to me in the field of design and looking at this feet as it is, we are we seeing that by federal law, by dictate for the last 24 years, we do not see the emergence of a low-carbon fishing fleet. We do not see a fishing fleet as long, lean, that is safe, that seaworthy as the earliest of human vehicles. On the, look at the Viking ships. You're talking about dangerous devices, except they did fabulous things with these low-slung devices. Long, yeah. lean, and fast, and light. Uh, I'm not proposing for people to go to sea like the Vikings, no. But you can learn what has been done before. And seeing this development, that the natural evolution towards uh, sustainability in the fishing fleet structure, see that arrested for the last 24 years, that's a really, it's a tragedy to see and it's very disturbing. Now, okay, the second metric then is tonnage. And is it the same problems with that? Uh, you know, I imagine, I don't know how they measure tonnage how do they measure that and what's the official definition of that that they're going by for you know you should go and ask them that okay <laughs> you'll right. find you'll find a rather bewildering mess i i talked with a guy who was an instructor at a boat design academy we don't have to mention any names or locations and i asked myself oh Susanna, funny that you should bring it up i did a piece and it was like five six seven different ways of defining tonnage and that's wherein lies the evil they picked a metric that about, is about as useful in boat design, if you don't mean actually the weight of the boat, if you mean something else, that metric is about as useful as defining people by the color of their skin. It's a weird hang-up. It's got bad historic confusions behind okay. it. It is not useful. It's not productive. It reflects a sense of ignorance about what you're actually trying to do here. And, and instead of simply saying this, instead of this tonnage, whatever you think it is, uh, there are no tons actually involved, big cans or something, or big barrels or something. We actually we simply want to limit the overall lethality of the fishing vessel itself. We don't want it to have it need too much fish and therefore take more fish so than everybody else. Let's jump out of the list here and focus on this lethality. Right. You can intuit, you can look at these boats and you can kind of intuit the lethality of each one if you look over at the black yeah. and gold there and compare it to the Princess Laura in front of us. The Princess Laura looks like a mean machine. That thing looks like that can pull some fish out of the water. And for some fisheries, you need these. If you want to go and catch herring or mackerel, they're schooling fish. But they're sort of the basis of food chain, including out in the ocean. A lot of other larger fish live off little herring and bigger herring. If you want to catch these, you have to go out, what they call midwater trawling. And this is very defensible if you don't take too much of the good stuff. And you put very large mesh nets behind them, and you take literally millions of fish in one shot but the fish are only six eight ten inches long yeah you can eat them on a small bun for one lunch and you're going to discover that you know you'd rather have a second one so this you're not exactly killing the ocean so for some of the fisheries where the fish are so small or sardine fishing you need big nets and you need some of these large fishing machines however however those you can still fine-tune towards a burning less fuel so they don't have to go out as much to catch as much fish in order to leave enough for everybody else and uh, we're not talking about socialism here but we're talking about sharing in the bounty of nature in a sustainable fashion for you to be able to to pay off your mortgage on the damn boat in the next 10 20 years right. uh, and and never mind feeding your family never mind putting up a college fund for your kids and paying your old age insurance i mean you have your own survival plans long term and so 
the balancing of the interests uh, between taking too much and the lethality of each individual operation and adding it all up is a good, solid, it's a civilized undertaking. What we've been unhappy with, again, is what we touched on those odd metrics. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to see the implications of just a metric and how, you know, what you choose to measure and what you choose to judge uh, lethality against is, you know, has been just unfurling for the last 25 years. Um, now, as far as stealing ideas go, um, are you looking towards, you know, Asian fleets, Scandinavian fleets, even certain African fleets for ideas at this point? Like if, if, those, if this regulation were removed, where would you immediately travel to to start talking to the boat makers there and getting the ideas from? Well, it's very interesting to look around, obviously. We know, for instance, that the ancient Chinese, had, you know, they were sitting around the world four or five hundred years ago before Christopher Columbus, you know, figured out sure. you know, how to say mama. Uh, so, so we have ancient history of seafaring all over the place. Three thousand years ago, people found Samoa. If you look at the Pacific map and see how small that Samoa is, you see how many people never found it and got lost and died at sea. So people have been finding ways to travel the waters forever. I mentioned the Vikings earlier, a thousand years ago plus. Uh, you look around the world and you find interesting phenomena in some of the poorest countries with the greatest population precious for people to need protein, meaning usually wild-caught fish, like the Philippines. You find extraordinarily lean fishing machines. You find these spiders that are running along, they have a little, a little old Toyota engine on a, what I call a dragon tail propeller over the stern on a long shaft. There's no real, not much of a hull. It doesn't carry much fish either, not many crew, but they can zip in and out in no time at a good clip of speed, run away from bad weather, just can never carry much. And, and then they go fishing and they don't have much of a footprint. The fact that you can't translate this to Gloucester per se, is, has to do with weather, has to do with the fact that people have uh, different traditions here about what they think is seaworthy and how easy they think human life can be lost and you don't think much about because some of those Filipino vessels are scary and they, they take a certain toll in life. Uh, if you go to Iceland, for instance, you figure those old Vikings and they're pretty much still original Viking stock genetically. It's rather interesting, 300 plus thousand people, they're doing their own thing forever. <laughs> Except you don't find much of the wisdom of the ancients there anymore. They've been infected by a similar thinking that has been reigning supreme in this fleet here as well. You don't find super lean fishing machines in Iceland on any coast. And I looked around there because they've been fishing forever. You don't find it in Europe, tragic. In Europe, similar realities have emerged almost back to medieval days. We mentioned England and the old harbor master pacing your trading vessel to charge your rent for the night. Um, you end up with length limitations there as well. The European Union, they're, they're quite they've copied almost verbatim what has gone wrong in this country or they were in some ways even more sinning in worse ways earlier than the 1994 uh, date that, that we got so excited about in, in, in a dark way excited as, as such a day of tragedy you look at uh, African places that you don't find many offshore going African fishermen per se there are some here and there are certain islands like Cape Verde Islands so folks are obviously offshore anytime you're, you're a long out of sight to distance from shoreline you'll have a boat to seaworthy enough but most folks are coastal fishermen in fact it a lot has to do with the topography of the coastline if you don't have a natural harbor like Gloucester where you have an outer harbor inner harbor is facing the right way then not every storm is going to clean your clock it doesn't ruin everything which Gloucester is by its you know granite structure first history 
history, the formation of the, the North American continent through the hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. Uh, this is a, a, a rare amenity. This is why people go fishing out of this place. It gives you natural protection. If you have no such coastline and you only have a beach, you, you're limited in the size of the boats you can bring up and down the beach by the size of, of how many people can push the thing in the water and how quickly can you get it out of the water when the storm strikes so you don't lose all your livelihood. Uh, and so you end up with all sorts of constraints around the globe. If you were to go and find, you go, let, let's, let's go on the Holy Grail. We don't use coconuts like our friends from Monty Python and trying to, to ride around in invisible horses. We actually are looking around. We just use the internet and, and look around you will tragically not really find 21st century low least carbon i'm always aiming for least carbon as the ultimate ambition burn the least amount just to, to just to make that your pride we don't find it almost anywhere ironically ironically we certainly don't find it anyway in industrialized ways you don't find it in china you don't find it in japan you don't find it in south korea you don't find it in north america you don't find it in central america you don't find it in europe by the time you don't you really just don't find it it's a weird phenomenon but if you do mind your history and it's an interesting phenomenon my husband had a client who was a he was a sort of a, a gentleman Navy officer. He was well off enough. He said, oh, let me just join World War I. It'll be a fine adventure. And indeed he did. He didn't have to go. He wasn't drafted. He ended up going across the Atlantic in what they called a mine, ch a submarine chaser. It was meant, meant to hunt German submarines. They built 300 of these things. And they took him over to Europe in order to support the Allied forces in Europe against the Germans. And uh, so the Navy took 235 of these crossings on the record, took them to Europe, and these were long lean ships. These were boats that were, if you figure in your mind, they were about, they looked like a kayak almost. When you look down at them from Seagull, from bird's eye view, there were seven units of length to one unit of width. So there were sub chasers, and there were one, one class in particular because it has special relevance for glass, not just because of my husband's client. This client came to him after he'd written two books on being a Navy officer in World War I and how his experience was to take these long lean boats, first to Bermuda through a hurricane and then over to Europe. They didn't actually have the range, they had to refuel along the way, it was all terribly convoluted with radio and, and fuel ships and everything. They made it, they didn't lose anybody. But what they did take to Europe were these long lean machines, which later on in the, tw <coughs> in the 20s, 30s, they were sold off. It's a fine government-built work that was sold off to whom? To fishermen. And Gloucester alone had 12 of these, give or take. I get, at least I have a list of 12. And they were the old sub-chaser, World War I sub-chaser. They were 110 feet long by just a pinch under 15 feet wide. They weighed 150,000 pounds at the waterline, which means they weighed about ooh, less than half of what Princess Laura is there. And she's only, what did I say, 80 feet, give or take? Yeah. So these were long and lean boats, the kind of which we should be seeing here naturally, that were actually used. And how long were they used? It's interesting to remember this. A lot of young fishermen don't know this, but they have to talk to the grandfathers. The last such sub-chaser-based fishing boats, they simply converted these things. The Navy took all the military stuff off them, and the fishermen said, oh, let me move the wheelhouse here, and you take all these extra engines. I don't need three engines, I only need one engine. And so they just did what they needed to do, sold off everything they didn't need, and then they went fishing. And they went gill netting, they went long line, and they went eastern rig drag, which means these long skinny boats that lifted the toe over the side. They were dragging the fish over the side. People thought, oh, didn't these things roll over and kill everybody? No, they did not. So 
Gloucester was using these World War One Navy types that had crossed the Atlantic, as I said, 235, according to Navy records, recorded crossings across the big pond. This is no joke. Before weather balloons and weather satellites, wow. and this was doing it the hard way. They were using these fishing vessels in Gloucester. They were built in 1617 into 18 until 1972. So the last one of these tanks was over 50 years old when it was finally getting a bit too soft. These were wooden hulls hmm. with a little bit of government bronze. They had bronze engines and cast iron this and something else that. Actually, they were all cast iron engines. They had some bronze hardware on deck. Bronze would have been used, or rather non-metallic, non-magnetic for, for, for mine chasing, but they didn't do that. So let's not, not mix these things up. These guys used these vessels up there was not much left saving when these guys here in Gloucester, and there was 60 some up and down the coastline out of the 300. They didn't all come back from Europe. Uh, they used them. So we actually have, instead of looking to Iceland or the Philippines or Guinea Bissau or anywhere, Senegal or I don't know what, uh, uh, Kenya, we, we don't, or India for heaven's sake, uh, we don't need to look, you just look back in history, there are still people alive now who as young fishermen did actually work on these boats and who know like the Nicastro clan, uh, Serafina Nicastro, Serafina N was one of those World War I subchaser conversions, we have pictures of it, Peter Prybot's book, uh, Orange, t uh, Orange Mask, White Tip Orange Mask Drag, whatever this book is called, it's got nice stories about it, photographic evidence. These guys were feeding families of long, lean boats in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. If the boats had lasted longer, they would have fished with them into the 90s. However, as of March 1st, bringing it all back to where you started, Mark, the question, yep. in March 1st, 1994, these vessels would have been promptly outlawed because the fishing permits that were defined in the long time between those vessels having been used for 50, right. 60 years, they bred a different kind of uh, idea how big a boat could be. We come back to these metrics and suddenly you have a fishing permit for, let's say, a 50-footer, but you can make the boat longer and leaner instead of making a 50-footer that is maybe 50 feet long and 15 feet wide, kind of a chunky, hefty little thing, or not so little. You cannot say, Susanna, this thing is burning too much fuel. I need 300 horsepower, blah, 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 to this and that. What can I do to burn less fuel? And these individual fishermen are not allowed to pursue their best business model, the best type of, of vessel that matches their personal fisheries and what they're allowed to catch in order to remain sustainable as a small business, as a family venture, or simply as a fishing industry, if you add up each individual fisherman's decision times how many zillion people work out of a port like this, at least used to work out of a port like this. So the guy who has a 50-foot permit, I don't know if you see this is where the metrics come in. The permit says, this is, this is, we'll bring it back up to where we started out here. Where did these, the length, horsepower, and tonnage thing kick in? It was written on a fishing permit. It defined for you what kind of boat you were allowed to have. Mm -hmm. So there's some government bureaucrat who's, you know, lost two out of three. He's already going to dictate for the next 24 years that you are not allowed to innovate. You're not allowed to try what your grandfather went to sea on. Because if you take some of these brutes, if you let's look at Princess Laura. Uh, I think, as she sits here, she may well be weighing in at 200,000 pounds, just as she sits. Yeah. She's not a, she, there's not a light ride. This is steel and lots of below water. Everything is heavy duty. If you were to take 
this brings us to the point what Phil and I were fishing for and what, of course, coming back to the submarine chasers, what they had, without having any regulation, what they are naturally arrived at. They say, yeah, these long lean boats work just fine. They're seaworthy. We're feeding our families for decades to come. They don't, don't, don't argue about it. It's good. We're fine. We're not suicidal. We're going to come back in a week's time with a hold full of fish. We're good. We've done it before. Yeah. We'll be fine. Princess Laura, if you took, if you had her fishing point, 80 feet, and you were going into the alternate universe we've been offering to the fishing regulatory universe since March of 2003. We spoke up it in public. It's on a record. It's legal record, actually. It should be at least so considered. Fifteen years ago, we said, you know, why don't you take it with the length limitations and limit, uh, let every fisherman, here, let, uh, let's, let's go through the sequence here to make it easier to understand. We have a fleet that we look around. We just started out this conversation. What do we see in front of us? So every year, these boats usually get hauled out. What for? I look underneath. There's any algae growing, barnacles growing, something is corroding somewhere. Let's just take a look around. So these guys get hauled out at least once a year. Some of them only every two years, but on average, some of them get hauled out more than once. So when you haul out the boat, what does it mean to haul out the boat? You go over, you look at Frank Rose's. He's got this big marine yard where you repair big boats, including Princess Lava. Could be repaired over there. Uh, Lady Jane over there, Russell Sherman's boat, is also shipped by now. She was out of the water a month ago. She was being painted up again. Everything was underneath, was freshened up. Uh, you, if you take her out of the water, you can actually weigh how much she physically weighs. Ah. So when you lift her up, our hardware we have in this pool, we had it for decades, does allow you Unlike before in history, remember the medieval English harbour master trying to pinch you for some extra shackles for you to tie up the boat for the night, so you paces your boat, ah, your boat is this big, so here comes the length fetish. No, no, it is sort of a fetish without getting going too far in that direction, <laughs> language-wise, but it's a weird fixation with the irrelevant. The medieval harbour master in England could not guess how much your vessel was actually weighing, what the actual size of his ship or your boat was, but today we can't. Everything we have on this board, we've been able to weigh for at least 25, 30 years, some other 40 years. In fact, the heaviest such device in New England that I know of that can lift a man-made structure like a substantial vessel, can lift it out of the water and tell you within minutes how much the thing weighs in its current state. Could be full of fuel, could be empty, full of ice, full of fish, full of people, whatever. But you can figure out, look at it first. What we would do, we'd have a massive half fuel, no ice, no people, no fish, no nothing. Just bring her in, let's establish a baseline. When you lift up the vessel, the biggest device in the unit can lift the vessel, can lift up to 400 tons. 400 tons is bigger than any fishing vessel that I know of going to see anywhere in New England. So we have had the infrastructure to not pace the length of the boat or hope to know how big this thing with some odd mushy tonnage idea which nobody ever could agree on all you would do is say okay lift the boat okay your boat weighs in her case let's assume 200,000 pounds let's take a look at over that black and gold she may as she sits here that's a, a, a would be a lobster boat give or take it could also be a gunnetta she sits here with probably 12 15,000 pounds as she sits as she floats there and you write what the boat weighs into your fishing permit. So instead of black gold being limited by 32 feet, which it may be, whatever, or Princess Laura at 80 feet, you say 80 feet or 200,000 pounds in case of the big dragger here, or you say 32 feet or 15,000 pounds. What would happen next? 
let's just all assume we're not going to give him more horsepower because loss of physics, blah, 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 without getting too much lost. Let's keep the horsepower. Let's don't throw everything out at once. Let's keep the horsepower because Princess Light wants to drag and this guy might actually want to occasionally do some pushing and shoving as well. Let's just keep the horsepower where it is. Let the guys later on decide, you know, I don't really need that big an engine. Burning too much fuel after all. I, I can downsize. Next time the engine's getting ripe on me, it's worn out. I put a smaller one. It'll be good enough. So, but what will happen to Black and Gold or to Princess Laura is that they have now in their permit, let's make it a key date also March 1st, 1994. As of March 1st, these guys would have said, okay, I've got an 80-foot, 200,000-pounder. Which way do I want to go? What do you mean, which way you're going to go? Well, Giuseppe Di Maio, go-getter extraordinaire, a hard character. You don't want to mess with Joe Di Maio in this town. You don't. I know him. He's a serious guy. I wouldn't want to challenge him. He could say, okay, Susanna, I know you. I feel I respect your work. Give me a boat that will match my deal the best. I've got a permit that allows me to drive a 200,000-pound empty weight fishing boat. Go. Design. Go. Design. And then we would have ourselves a field day. Of course, he would have been smarter than you, some people may think he is. He's always smarter than you think he is. And and he would have said, you know, I've seen this in Egypt. I've seen that over there. And I, I saw this Navy thing over there. There's an Irish patrol craft, a fisheries patrol craft. I like the shape. And I look, the tonnage, could we shrink this? Blah, blah, blah. He would come with a whole universe. It's like a kid in a candy store. And it would have been an explosion up and down the coastline of people breaking down the door of innocent design offices like ours to say, you know what? I've just got the liberation. I finally took the knee off our chest. And yeah, 32 feet for some people, that's the holy grail. But actually, in my black black and gold here, my 15,000 pound permit, I may want to go for one of these South Sea pros. You know, everything in the main hull and engine, but a little bit off center, propeller asymmetric because I'm going to drag this outrigger smaller hull on the side so I don't flip over. And I'm going to do also the one, I'm going to be lobstering because I'm going to stack the traps on the outrigger bridge and I'm going to haul between the two hulls. And I know I'll never flip over because I've got this outrigger out there. And I'm going to be starting along instead of burning 150, 200 horses. You know, I think we can run the damn thing on 60 horses. A small four-cylinder John Deere industrial diesel, not even a turbocharger. You know, and, and by the time you start thinking this through, you get really excited. Yeah. Be because you realize, boy, you know, uh, a John Deere 60 horsepower engine, uh, I think actually 72, whatever it is, something modest, something you'd find in, in a delivery, a small delivery truck of some sort, um, they don't cost anything like a 150 horsepower engine. The work to work on them is still more or less the same power, but you don't need as big a propeller shaft. You don't need as big a gearbox. You don't need a bigger propeller. Everything shrinks down. You still need the controls. You still need the radar. So this stays the same. But for every hour of operation, you can start planning on burning half the fuel. And Don, as I've shared some numbers with you in one of these documents you've read up on before we got together today, some of these folks will be cutting down 60 plus percent in the fuel burn and they still fish the same amount of fish easy and this is just the first go around because one thing the reason why this place is so fascinating it just looks like a sleepy harbor oh yeah a little gloucester uh, manchester by the sea gloucester by the smell ha <laughs> ha how funny is that <laughs> it's not well it's funny too because they it's used to have funny. a smelly place here yeah, it's yeah. funny kids love it except today is not much smell anymore uh, what, what you would have seen over the last almost 400 years is a steady innovation. In this philosophically and politically, socioeconomically, you're going to get all fancy on me here. Anthropologically, it is very sure. interesting to see a culture of innovation 
where Jody Mayo and his great 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 grandfather who, who left, you know, apparently Sicily 300 years ago, and he didn't know that, uh, or anybody here with an old Nordic name or somebody from who knows what ancestry, they would have been, and they did tweak all the time how they go fishing. In the age of sail, every individual sailing, the so-called the master, the captain of a ship, they had their own way of rigging each boat, a little bit different. You can tell roughly whose vessel this would likely be. Uh, you had people who had a different idea of what the underbody should look like. There was always a back and forth of great ideas, dumb ideas, stupid ones, some catastrophic ones, some pretty good ones, and you would have a gradual, sensible evolution of a better and sensible and sensible way of doing business as Very a fisherman. Good. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, March 1st, 1994, there's almost a, a mantra with me, except it is a legally binding cutoff date. It is public policy. You get nailed if you violate the rules since 1994. That date stopped the natural, what you could call organic evolution. I've, I've phrased it in one of the papers that you've read. Gloucester is an old growth industrial community. It doesn't look like much except there's so much stuff going on and assumptions, uh, neighbor relations, uh, business relationships between people. You think, what do they have to do with each other? Well, you just don't know what line of work he's doing. Insurance people, accountants, net manners, welders, people who drive vehicles, bringing ice or, or taking fish, bringing the equipment that you need to process fish. There's all sorts of stuff constantly going on, dedicated, specialized around commercial fishing and hopefully the sustainable exploitation or harvesting of a wild caught, more or less unadulterated source of, of protein, good stuff, something you can feed your newborn without having too much of a fright. And, and that was all darkly disrupted. And here's one more thing. All right, last you, thing. The, the grave irony here, and this is really ironic and sad, this thinking that innovation in the fishing fleet, keeping things limited by length, has propagated over several decades now, also through the NOAA and NIMS marine biological fisheries research vessel, whichever label you want to put on these research boats, these boats are as bad as these vessels here are in terms of their relative carbon footprint, in terms of the horsepower per every mile traveled without doing any particularly sensible work. They are, the idea that, that these fishermen here have to work to federal dictates based presumably on science, so let's, let's hope the science is good, but that science comes off a research fleet. This is absurdly high carbon itself. That is astonishing. And how can I say this? I mentioned earlier I was invited to give a talk two years ago at the University of Rhode Island, uh, Graduate School of Oceanography, by invitation only. A rear admiral was there, National Science Foundation people were there. Big time meeting for some reason, some fool thought that I should be there. Or rather, some, somebody thought a fool like me should be there. The individual is no fool at all. And so, in preparation for that meeting, not only do I work on my brilliant, brilliant presentation there, but I look up what does the national research fleet look like? What does University of Rhode Island get to draw on if they want to send their best and brightest to see, to discover a new, you know, scientific reality, to do lengthy research, to really establish fundamentally new knowledge or something, which is what, what scientists are in the business of living, actually, for or off. And, and uh, you look at the national research vessel fleet and you find that there is not 
much comfort to be found. They are almost uniformly high carbon, meaning they're the brutally crude, lumpy piles of steel in the water with big butch bow waves. There's no apparent ambition to lead fishermen, the whole universe, to say, listen, look how smart we are, look how little fuel we burn for every mile traveled, and how we carefully only deploy horsepower when we need to, you know, sample, you know, stock for stock assessment, or yes. we, we send out the special robot or the, the remote operating vehicle doing whatever. Uh, none of that pride exists in the research community either. You, so you find research vessels owned all the way to the U.S. Navy, National Science Foundation, University of Massachusetts system, uh, Stevens Institute, uh, Scripps Institution, MIT, any of the biggest, the baddest, the butchest, the brightest, they're not leading with even the research vessels either. So you have a, a sort of a systemic, what you could call a sort of a viral infection of thinking that is not productive. Now, you could argue that no matter how bad the research vessel fuel burn may be, the science still is good, and you would certainly hope for that. And I think yeah. you can probably make a claim, you know, Susanna, you can be too precious and too pious about your endless grinding along about green boats. We can take the damn aircraft carrier uh, to sea and we can still do new science. Yes, except it's a matter of credibility and the ethics of trying to force people in and out of commercial fishing businesses based on your numbers, on your science, when you yourself haven't actually led the charge towards the best, the greenest, the most sustainable fishing research vessel or simply an oceanographic vessel you may be going globetrotting with. Because anybody who believes that you couldn't do a super green globe cruising some such or is simply staying in New England in the Gulf of Maine research vessel, they also haven't done their homework the same way those good folks here in New England in Gloucester office of, of National Marine Fisheries Service did in preparation for that tragic uh, March 1st decision in 1994. Okay. They didn't do the homework and uh, here we are. So there's a novel lot that we can do. That's what I'm doing this talk with you about to spread the gospel. It's not a story of just woe. We know there are fundamental errors in judgment, but we also know what we can do because we mentioned subchases, for instance. We can study our Filipino friends, how did they do certain things. And in where the, can people find more about you? If, if people, somebody listens to this, they're intrigued, what should they do? Well, the simplest thing to do is to, to do, and some folks wouldn't volunteer that, but why shouldn't we? I just, just punch in Phil Bolger. You'll find an awful lot by Phil Bolger. Somebody went through great pains, a whole bunch of people, to put a big entry in Wikipedia. Because Phil Bolger, by sheer numbers, he ranks something like number four in the history of, of small craft yacht designers ever anywhere. He's quite a giant, unbeknownst to many, but the numbers simply are what they are. They okay. did 680 designs. The other thing you can and should do is just simply try the email. Uh, that will be around for a bit longer, I suspect. It would be philbolger at comcast.net. Okay. Easy enough. I don't Can abuse it, but it's out there. <laughs> and I'm not going to necessarily give you my phone number, but I think okay. some folks have it somewhere too. Uh, people, we, we, Phil and I, and Phil always did work on a fundamental assumption of civility, which was usually not a disappointing exercise. A certain relative mm -hmm. honest mm -hmm. principle, some people think is naive, but he happily for us entertained lengthy um, letter exchange with people all the way into medium security penal facilities. Vacaville, California is not a nursing home for the bright of heart and the heavy of, of whatever heart. These are heavy hitters, some of these guys, and you never ask them what they're in for. 
There could be libraries, there could be mass murderers. If they want to talk to you about boats, let's talk boats. Cage your mind of other nasties. So we talk about these issues in a civilized form with anybody. Fishermen, scientists. I was just at in New Bedford last week at the Marines, at the School of Marine Science and Technology, SMAST. It's part of the University of Massachusetts system. There was a gathering of folks in the fishing industry, a regular meeting format. And I raised this issue. I handed out my four-pager, which you have as well, to summarize it, because you don't want to listen to three hours yeah. of me going on like this. But I could give you a full hour of a Lots of visuals, pictures, what vessels do look like right now, what they should look like, what we can't do here in this audio format. But I can do that. I've given this talk at various different ranges, different scale of people, uh, including a, an international audience a while back with 18 nations in the house. I don't do this routinely, but you can do that. So, yes, people All can right. find it and they can listen to more of this. Best, however, is to simply read the stuff that you can find as a PDF out of our universe. And uh, my hope is to finally, since we have everything in place that we needed as of late last year and cleaning up a whole bunch of things in our desk in this office, is to put a lot of this stuff increasingly online for fishermen to say, you know, enough of this. We need to do better, we can do better, and let's just be more sensible. This is way too embarrassing. This is almost like North Korea stupid or something. The idea that America's <laughs> oldest fishing fleet cannot innovate for 24 years, that's just embarrassing. That really is just dumb. And so on thanks that, for the opportunity, uh, yeah. Mark, and I appreciate everybody's interest in listening to the endless grinding along. Count yourself lucky you don't have to live anywhere near me. I would go on with three <laughs> hours without taking a breath even. Uh, all right, that's Suzanne Altenberger, boat builder from Gloucester, boat, Massachusetts. Boat designer. Boat designer, excuse me. Phil Bolger and friends. I've been around for 66 years and hope to be around for a little bit longer. Here's to that. Thank you. Thank you.